Hey everyone, and welcome to the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. I'm your host, Master Sergeant Lance Haas. Our goal with this podcast is for Team Fairchild to get to know each other, our support programs, and to increase our sense of community and development. Every episode, we'll be interviewing people from around the base and learning about them, as well as their keys to success. On this episode, we are sitting down with Lieutenant Colonel Caricio, the commander of the 92nd Aircraft Maintenance Squadron. Sir, how's it going? Pretty good, Lance. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the time. I know uh, this time of year, things get really, really busy. I can only imagine as a commander. So I really do appreciate uh, giving us this hour to pick your brain a little bit, and hopefully it'll help some people get your perspective and kind of learn from some of your trials and tribulations. So appreciate it. Sounds good. So let's start off easy. Um, How did you get to this spot in your life? Well, it's been an unusual uh, kind of twisty turny career for me. Not necessarily the approved solution for um, most (laughs) maintenance officers. But uh, I was a, uh, a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy, or the School for Boys and Girls in Colorado Springs, as they usually call it, <laughs> School for Wayward Youths. Um, and uh, I did two assignments in aircraft maintenance at Dover and Kadena. Uh, and then I applied for the Air Force Academy Faculty Pipeline Program. Okay. So I was um, sent for a full-time master's degree, earned a master's in wow. English literature, and then went back and taught at the Air Force Academy for just about three years in the English department while I was a captain. Then after that, uh, aircraft maintenance said, you've, you've had your fun, now time to come back and contribute to the mission. <laughs> and so I did. Uh, I, went to, uh, I went to Charleston as an ops officer in the AMXS there. Okay. Um, and then following that, got picked up for my first squadron command uh, at RAF Mildenhall. I commanded the maintenance squadron, the MXS at Mildenhall. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then from there, I did a 365 in Kabul. Uh, as an air advisor. So I was commanding an air advisory squadron. We were advisors to the Afghan Air Force for a year. And then immediately following that, I was selected for command again for a third time here (laughs) at uh, RAF Milden, or I'm sorry, at at Fairchild Air Force Base (laughs) and uh, in the the 92nd. So a couple of sort of unconventional assignments, but uh, but really, really good ones. What from that stands out as a high point? Uh, Well, I think that um, a couple, a couple of the things that really stand out at high points. I was fortunate enough as uh, as an AMUOIC when I was at Kadena to move into the rescue squadron, and so we were maintaining a fleet of HH-60 helicopters for CSAR yep. and Medevac, uh, and had the opportunity to deploy and go to Kandahar with my maintainers and my pilots and my aircraft and uh, save lives on the battlefield um, wow. for for soldiers for. Uh, NATO partners for Afghan civilians, and that that unit, that unit, the camaraderie that we had, the mission that we were doing, that is something that I've always really been proud of that I was a part of, and what we were able to accomplish and the lives we were able to save. So that was a big one. Um, wow. teach, teaching was tremendous. Going back to my alma mater again and trying to um, prepare cadets to go off and, and be intrepid lieutenants <laughs> out in the world. Uh, that was that was really really great, and then uh, I the air advisor gig uh, was a it's still pretty fresh because I just finished that in September of eighteen, mm-hmm. and it is a it, I will I will not forget that year embedded with the Afghans and also trying to lead and uh, protect my maintainers. We had the youngest maintainer that we had while we were there was a staff sergeant, so it was all staff sergeants in the other <coughs> small okay. squadron, um, and constantly kind of doing that calculus of how much risk are we willing to accept with the Afghans in order to try to get mm-hmm. them to the point where they're independent, self-sufficient, doing maintenance on the various platforms. So 
um, yeah, the, some of the some of the unusual assignments really stand out. Um, yeah, and then also, um, yeah, I uh, really enjoyed as a as a young captain working in rescue. That to me, the the whole air advisor thing that just sounds crazy. I mean, the thought of for you said a year, right? That's right. For a year, having that that turmoil mentally of trying to be there and provide and teach and you know help, but at the same time keeping your guard up because not everybody's a completely good dude, and you had to be on your game a little bit. Just that fight back and forth that had to be kind of crazy. It was a challenge. Um, the we had a lot of great support from our intel apparatus and our counterterrorism apparatus who would go to great lengths to make sure that they were vetting and understanding nice. all the Afghans that we were working with and everyone who was um, on the on the manning document for the Afghan Air Force, which the Afghans called the Tashkil. Uh, everybody who was on the Tashkil was someone that we wanted to know a little bit about. The, the real challenge for me as the commander was not only how much risk was I willing to accept day to day, but knowing that each of my NCOs and senior NCOs, who were all maintainers and all experts in their particular maintenance field, yeah. Uh, we're now in a situation that was very unusual and completely unlike anything we had previously done. And with um, uh, with the Afghans and as an advisor, you're working very, very hard to build trust in a part of the world where usually it takes years or generations to build trust. So you are trying to surge that trust so that um, you're able to actually uh, influence and assist and advise, uh, while at the same time understanding that building trust also requires a vulnerability on your own part. So how vulnerable do you choose to be until you get to the point where now you have accepted too much risk and you may put yourself in a situation that um, you can't necessarily walk back afterwards? So mm-hmm. we do, um, as, a, as a Department of Defense, um, uh, we, have, we have lost advisors uh, through the years um, in a couple of very memorable incidents. So the big thing for us was um, making sure that we still were remembering our training, remembering all of the good lessons that we learned at uh, McGuire and at Fort Dix before mm-hmm. we deployed and, uh, and, and striking that balance. So, yeah, it, it, uh, it creates a very unusual atmosphere. Wow. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, uh, when did you actually go into the academy? As a as a cadet, yes, the first time around, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I so I showed up in uh, in 1999 wow. uh, at the Air Force Academy as a freshman and uh, graduated in 2003. So uh, and I I lead that because on several of these interviews I kind of realize I'm I'm able to capture where people were at on the 9/11 thing and kind of getting some different perspectives from that. I was talking with uh, Colonel McCarthy, yes, and he had just started a internship i believe is what he said at the pentagon as a mental health provider like in a couple weeks 9-11 happened so from your perspective uh being in the academy during that time what was uh what was the environment what was it like if you if you don't mind us walking down that path a little bit certainly no problem they so that was the start of my junior year and at the time um the way that your commitment worked was you could show up at the air force academy and you could complete your freshman and your sophomore year and decide at the end of those two years that you didn't feel that you were called to continue in, okay. you know, to gain a commission in the Air Force. And you could, you could walk away freshman and sophomore year. You could say, hey, you know what, I'm not going to continue. I'm going to return to civilian life um, without any sort of consequence. Uh, when you started your junior year, however, you incurred a commitment. Okay. So starting your junior year incurred a five-year commitment to the Air Force. Um, which was my initial commitment that I served, you know, after graduation. What was fascinating for my class was that we came back in August of 2001 and incurred our commitment as juniors. Mm -hmm. And then in September of 2001, the world changed. 
Yeah. And the the Air Force that that we joined in the late 90s was not the Air Force that we graduated into in 2003. Yeah. By 2003, we were already in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, you know the global war on terror was off and running. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was an interesting experience for me to watch the Air Force change just in the four years that I was a cadet. Of course, as a cadet, you're you know not the most profoundly aware person <laughs> in the world. I was working really, really hard just to try to figure out who I was and what kind of adult I was going to be, because adulting is hard when you're a cadet. But the on 9-11, um, the, of course, we went to FBCon Delta, mm-hmm. and we shut down the base. Um, and of course, there, as everyone always describes, there's that eerie quiet when there's no longer any planes flying overhead. Yeah. And being in Colorado Springs, you know, we were in a major air corridor for Denver International, as well as, you know, Colorado Springs itself, uh, not to mention the Army aviation that was happening out at um, Fort Carson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so occasionally just hearing a couple of F-16s on, you know, uh, domestic alert split the sky and watching the, uh, the, the Humvees drive around with, you know, somebody in the turret as a, as a 20, 20-year-old cadet, it, was, it made an impression. Uh, the first night, they sent us out on safety and security patrols. They handed us a flashlight and a radio. And they said, okay, in teams of two, you're going to walk around and patrol the dorms. And we didn't know what was going on. Everybody on 9-11 was, was confused and yeah. scared and concerned. You didn't know what kind of effort was being marshaled against the United States. Yeah. And I remember being out there with my friend Dan Werner. And the two of us are, are trying to come up with scenarios like, what happens if we do see something that doesn't look right? Okay, well, do we, like, <laughs> do we throw the flashlight at them and then make the radio call as we run? You know, it was, uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was not what we expected to be doing on that September evening. But then almost immediately, um, the, you know, the cadet wing and the administration of the Air Force Academy worked to reorient our expectations to what sort of nice. Air Force we would be commissioning into. Um, and it was, it was changing by the day, changing by the day. So by the time we got to graduation, we knew that you know, we were going to be deploying and going downrange and taking the fight to the enemy in a way that we could not have predicted just four years before. Yeah, wasn't even on the radar four years before. Exactly. Wow. Yep. Well, thanks for that. Sure. Well, now that we know that, uh, let's get into some some leadership type stuff. So how do you define success? Success. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Very good. Success in its most basic form is uh, the, the ability to meet or exceed expectations and requirements, right? That would be the most basic way to look at it. I think a lot of the challenge is in defining those expectations and requirements. You have to do all of the the head work first to say, this is where our organization should be performing. This is what we should be achieving. And so then success being defined by um, marshalling people and resources. uh, And this is really commander's business, right? We organize, train, and equip. So marshalling people and resources uh, and materiel to meet or exceed those expectations. Sometimes it's very easy. We get those expectations handed down to us by higher headquarters. But sort of the, the exciting thing about being a commander and a leader is getting together a team and saying, okay, what are we actually capable of achieving? And what would be a stretch goal? Yeah. What would be something that we say, you know, if we get everything working the way it's supposed to, this would be something remarkable that we could achieve together. Uh, and then after defining that as a team and committing to that as a team, when you do achieve it, that's that's great success. That's it makes yeah. a, it makes a, a big impact across an organization. I love it. 
What do you think has made you successful? That's a great question. (laughs) That's made me successful. So as far as the Air Force is concerned, the things that have made me successful are my, my ability to communicate has been really, really vital. I think as time goes on, leaders have more and more of a burden to provide perspective and context when, when mm-hmm. time permits to provide the why behind why we're doing something. Yeah. So leaders set the vision and they give direction, um, but then also they have to clearly communicate vision and direction. In the absence of that, uh, folks will be out there working, but they won't necessarily know what the broader enterprise is that they're contributing to. Mm-hmm. And it also helps your NCOs and your senior NCO leaders to do the things that senior NCOs are supposed to do, which is to say, okay... I understand clearly where we're trying to go. Here's the task that's right in front of me, but two or three tasks ahead, that's where I'm thinking right now so that we can continue to move as opposed to finish the thing that's in front of me and then go, well, somebody tell me what's next. So, <laughs> um, so being able to communicate has been, has been really, really critical. And then also aircraft maintenance, for better or for worse, it inculcates young officers with and understanding that you are going to have to work very hard and you're going to have to make sacrifices um, in terms of your free time, in some cases in terms of stuff that has nothing to do with work. You are going to make those sacrifices because of what you're responsible for. Mm -hmm. For young maintenance officers, a lot of times they believe that they're really responsible for um, for managing the fleet, for getting the fleet where it needs to be. The reality, more often than not, is that there's actually a very qualified team of senior NCOs who are managing the fleet and doing a great job. And it's not all <laughs> resting on that young lieutenant, right? But, uh, but we as senior maintenance officers require that young lieutenant to be able to talk intelligently about the fleet, about what should come next in terms of a sequence of events, what decisions should be made with the iron. And what that begins to engender over time is a persistent commitment to working hard and working long hours to provide for the people you lead. That's Mm -hmm. the biggest thing that I think that uh, makes organizations successful is when the leaders are going the extra mile and putting in all of the effort to make the working environment and the conditions better for the people they lead. Um, so that between communicating and then also just understanding where the, where the work has to happen, um, and that you're willing to do the work, you're willing to say, you know what, it's going to be a long, it's going to be a long day, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but this is what's required. Uh, the perseverance, I think. Um, so that's Air Force related. I think that it would be completely for naught, however, if I was not supported by my family, there would be, there would be no way that I would have been able to continue air forcing for as long as I have if <laughs> yeah. um, if my wife and children were not able to, to do it with me and if I did not have uh, the support and partnership of, of my wife as well. So that is, you know, that is the other huge piece of who I am. And I see, you know, uh, in a vocational way, I see my jobs as Air Force officer mm-hmm. and then as, you know, husband and father. And if I, I, I try to balance it so that the one helps me to be good at the other. Um, yeah, and yeah. there are periods of your life like a like a three sixty five in Kabul where you're doing the mission, and you know you're really relying on your your spouse and your family to have similar levels of perseverance <laughs> in your absence. And so, yeah. um, 
Without that, though, I would not have been able to continue uh, for as long as I have. And then uh, the last thing that gives me a lot of resilience is uh, is faith. So for me, um, nice. having a, having a faith based background and and being able to uh, go to that well for resilience, even when times are tough, um, that that helps me to to find that reserve of perseverance uh, to push yeah. through the the harder, longer days. Wow. So with the family part of that, I'm guessing. Being a guy that's been married for coming up on 21 years, congratulations! I know, thanks. That's excellent. And there was a lot of a lot of lessons that I learned that my wife was gracious enough to <laughs> be very patient in me learning those lessons. Excellent. I'm guessing that you probably had some good talks. Some, I mean, you didn't just come out the gate and be amazing at being a, a husband and a father. And so, without prying in too much, mm. what are some of the key things that Maybe a, a you know a young family that's listening to this, when they're learning that balance of having an obligation to your job, but also trying to like what you were saying, have them complement each other when they can. Mm-hmm. What were some of those conversations like? Not to put you on the spot, but you know, well, I mean, if some come to mind. It's kind of the nature of the interview. Right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so the so I got married um, uh, not 21 years ago, but uh, but coming up on 15 years ago. Uh, still to, a heck to my of an accomplishment. Thank yeah. you very much. Um, <laughs> I'm very fortunate. And uh, we were married when I was I was just pending on first lieutenant, um, nice. right about that time. And the the thing that's so difficult for young couples is uh, my wife it, it comes from a, a family with no real military background. So uh, um, for a while, when we were when we were dating. Uh, there was a little bit of uncertainty as to whether or not I was in the Army or the Air Force. She wasn't 100% sure on that. She would say, my boyfriend, well, he's, I think he's in the Army. I don't know what he does. You know? and, uh, and I don't think that's uncommon. Either. I, hear, I hear similar stories from people. Um, so as we were talking about what life would be like when we were married, I, had, I was less than two years out of the academy. So I'm saying things like, oh, yeah, it's going to look like this. I had no idea. I was brand new to the Air Force. I had no prior enlisted experience before going into the academy. I graduated high school and then went. So expectation management is really, really challenging, really, really challenging. Because, you know, our, our spouses and our families will, will hang their hats on, okay, you said that you probably won't deploy for two years while we're at this assignment. That's great. We can start to count on that. There's some attempt to find some stability and something right. that you can say, okay, well, at least I know this is going to happen, or at least I know this isn't going to happen. And then the longer that you serve in the military, you know that it's very unpredictable and it's very yeah. difficult to, uh, to forecast what is going to happen and when, because we you know, aren't in charge of where we go and when we go. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it has to do with um, you know, an entire cubicle farms of people down in San Antonio and then another big portion of it has to do with uh, you know global security realities when uh, the Department of Defense has to answer the call in different places yeah. so I think that the the biggest thing that was that we had to work on that we really had to work on again was communication was yeah. how often are we talking about what's actually going on in our lives and how transparent are we um, my wife had her own career when we were first married she um, she'd gone to Johns Hopkins got a master's degree in education and she wow. was uh, a very, very, and remains a very, very um, accomplished teacher uh, in, in various school levels, secondary school and, and junior high. And the, uh, the extent to which we could 
communicate and be honest about what was going on in our lives. I think a lot of times as military members, it's so difficult for us to try to translate to the civilian folks in our lives what is going on, mm-hmm. what our stressors are on a daily basis. Um, but when you get married to somebody, your partners, you know what I mean? And so if you're, yeah. if you're withholding information from your partner because it's too difficult to explain or too complicated or you just, you know, you just don't, don't worry about that, you know what I mean? Um, that's one of the things that we see a lot uh, now as a commander is when you're trying to get information out to you know, families and spouses, uh, it usually dies at the military member. You yeah. say, hey, we're going to let everybody know. Please make sure that your families know. And the military member goes, yeah, I'm, I'm just exactly. not going to talk about that. <laughs> and, that's, and that's about it. Um, so, so really working hard on communicating about what's practically going on. And then, you know, this is classic relationship stuff, but communicating about sort of the, uh, the emotional core of what's going on, what you are concerned about, what you're anxious about. A lot of times we try to spare our spouses by going, hey, you know what? My, my concerns and my fears and my anxieties, I'm just going to hold on to those. You, I mean, read any book you want, but, you know, that, that only lasts for so long before that stuff uh, comes out with a vengeance. Uh, yeah. And you realize, oh, you know what? If, if I had kind of like a pressure relief valve, right? If I just kept letting the pressure off on this a little bit at a time, it would have been manageable as opposed to the whole system just bursting. So, so that, was, that, w- that was early relationship stuff that I think continues. You never get to the point where you're like, oh, you know what? We solved that communication thing. Or you know what? <laughs> we solved that emotional honesty thing. Like, got it, you know? So you, uh, you just have to continue to work. But I am, I'm fortunate that, you know, my spouse is willing to put in the work. Even at times where, where I might be going, you know what? I am tired. I have been jobbing out today. I've had a, a lot of drains on the old prefrontal cortex. I don't yeah. know that I can really do a lot of um, talking about what's bothering me. Having a, having a partner that's willing to kind of draw that out and go, look, we, there's something that's bothering you. We should talk about it. It, it. it goes a long way. Yeah. Well, that's huge because I know from my experience, you know, if you don't have that, then, you know, you start manipulating in your mind what those answers are yes. and what that happens. Yes. And I don't know about your guys' experience, but mine has been whatever that is, is at least 180 degrees off from what the actual is, <laughs> yes. you know, and you just start building this thing and it's nothing. It's built mm-hmm. on nothing. So right. just, you know, getting those out. Yeah. Getting them out in the open. It, it, it's, it, it tends, I mean, even if it is emotional, even if the conversation is emotional, at least it's honest. And at least you've got that emotion that is helping you passionately work towards something that resembles a compromise or a solution. Yeah. As opposed to saying, you know, if I say this, my spouse is going to lose it, right? But then you don't say it. And then when it does finally come out in some sort of weird way, it squeaks out or your spouse <laughs> hears from somebody else, oh, hey, I'm so sorry, your husband, you know, it sounds like he got signed up for that deployment. Your spouse goes, what? <laughs> and you're like, man, this would have been way better. <laughs> If I had just been the one to relay that information as opposed to finding that on Facebook. So, absolutely. Very, very true. So, what motivates or drives you? Uh, I think that at this point, the, when, you, when you serve long enough and you end up in, in a leadership position, um, like being a commander, the thing, that, the thing that drives me at work is, um, is just success. We, we end up, so the, so the AMXS here at uh, Fairchild has hundreds of maintainers and it's a it's a young demographic you know most Mm -hmm. of our folks are staff sergeant or younger and so ultimately we're trying to show folks that are in their first enlistment that we are investing in that air force is a good life we've invested a bunch in your training we've taught you a trade we've gotten you through qualifications you're to the point where you get to about that end of that first enlistment and you are really making the air force money on that investment yeah Um, 
and trying to create an environment where everyone feels that they're capable of being successful, that's truly merit-based, that it's not who you know, right, it's not right. if you know, you're in the in crowd, but it's, hey, you know what, I go out there and I am knocking it out of the park in my job performance every day. And then we get to set an environment where we go, you know what, we recognize that about you and we want to give you the tools that you need to be successful. It's trying to retain that talent, trying to mm -hmm. retain that talent, even in the midst of a lot of stressors on the personal life and on family life, trying to say that, you know, the Air Force is a good life and this is a good job. That really motivates me. It's trying to set the conditions or set the environment uh, for us to that. be successful. I can see that. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. What's the greatest lesson that you've learned? Mm. Well, you know, in my in, one of the first lessons that I had to learn, I, I, was, I was always a pretty high achiever academically. Okay. Uh, growing up. And then um, I ended up, you know, uh, going to the Air Force Academy and finding out that, you know, what I'd been a, a big fish in a small pond. And then uh. as a cadet, you find out that you're actually just in a pond full of really big fish. So everybody's a pretty strong swimmer. You're not really <laughs> as special as you thought you were. <laughs> you're going to have to actually work. You can't just coast anymore. Uh, so that was great. So the, um, uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but there was this a charming little independent film called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure that came out in the 80s. And uh, Bill and Ted traveled back to ancient Greece to get Socrates, who they call Socrates. And they, uh, as they get out of their phone booth, they go, Socrates, and they pull out their textbook and they open it. And he goes, I know enough to know that I know nothing. And then Ted goes, well, that's us, dude. And he goes, yeah, let's bag him. And then they go and they get Socrates or Socrates and throw him in the phone booth to move on to the next scene, right? But that sort of the more that you learn in life, the more you realize how much you have to learn. As a, as a young person, as a, as a CGO, as a company grade officer, if you asked me, hey, how do we solve this problem? Be like, I'll tell you exactly how to solve that problem. I've been thinking about this all by myself for a month, and I know how to solve this problem, right? The longer I stay in, the more I rely on the consensus opinion of the leaders within my squadron. Um, whenever it comes to, you know, hey, what is that vision and what are those expectations? How are we going to define success? Or, hey, there's a personnel issue. You know, we have to make a decision about what's the appropriate accountability measure for someone who's messed something up, right? Right. I, I rely more and more on the opinions of others. Um, I try to solicit widely so that when I make a decision, it's based on being very well informed. So the, for, for me, the, the lesson of Socrates, that you know enough to know you know nothing, uh, <laughs> gets me to the point where in daily practice, um, I, am, I am trying to read widely. I'm trying to solicit widely as well uh, to get about as, as much information as I can um, before deciding what is the best direction for my squadron that I lead. I think that uh, that's probably one, of the, <laughs> it's probably one of the greatest things. The other thing, which is a corollary, you only asked me what's the greatest thing, but I'm going to give you a secondary thing because that's cool. we got the time. Yeah. Um, kindness. Kindness yeah. is something that is not necessarily always part of the program, you know, in the, in the military in general. <laughs> we have a tendency to uh, bring people into the military um, and uh, a tried and true methodology of, um, you know, breaking down to build up, you know. Yep. Yep. And uh, and then you know, there's often a there's often a thought where you say, hey, you know, I'm going to ask this person to do something. And increasingly, I think increasingly, um, as time goes on, and you know, our our force is better and better informed mm -hmm. um, because yeah. you know, information is at your fingertips now in a way that it wasn't when I was a kid. The 
are the people that we lead will say, hey, okay, yeah, I, I can do that, but why? Why do you want me to do that? That's not something that makes sense, but mm-hmm. it's not something that I normally do. That's something different. Why do you want me to do that? And the short answer is because you're in the military, so go do it, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I have learned through you know, multiple trips, especially multiple trips to Afghanistan for various reasons, is that generally speaking, we have the time to give that perspective in that oh, context. Yeah. We have the time to sort of connect with kindness to the people that we lead. And uh, my, my, my immediate action checklist is usually, is anything on fire? Is anyone bleeding? And are we getting shot at? And if the answer to all three of those things is no, we probably have a minute to go, yeah, let's talk about what we're doing and why, you know? Um, yeah. Because there have been times in my life where the answer to one or more of those things was yes. And, uh, and then you sort of don't have time to stand around and go, well, let me give you the background. You know, we're going we're gonna to have to move into that bunker fairly rapidly. So <laughs> the, um, the, the upshot is that when, when, you, when you are capable of leading with kindness, I find that the folks that you lead really begin to understand that you care about them as people and that you have their best interests in heart, right? Because you can't, we were talking about trust earlier, you can't surge trust, right? Trust takes time to build. Yeah. So nine times out of 10, if you lead in a thoughtful and rational way, if when someone brings you a problem or a concern, you respond to them with kindness as opposed to because I said so, right? Then on those days where you have to take immediate action, they're going to look at you and go, you know, nine times out of 10, he has demonstrated to me that he has my back and that he has my best interest in heart. So now I will trust him. And I, there isn't time to ask a question and I'm not going to ask it, but I'm going to do it to my utmost um, because I know that, you know, my supervisor or my leader is taking care of me. Um, That, that's a lesson that comes along, I think, late in life. Yeah. I think a lot of times folks, uh, they, they try to lead because somebody said, hey, you're in charge of this. Don't mess it up. And the person goes, okay, I can't mess it up. Do the thing that I said right now or else we're going to mess it up. And that uh, it doesn't, that sort of patience and kindness, I think, comes along a little bit later. I would 100% agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. So what are you learning right now? Well, uh, I'm, I'm learning that interviews are a little uncomfortable. Um, but, um, yeah, I shouldn't have volunteered for this. It's because I haven't blinked in 45. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, what am I learning right now? Um, I am learning more and more how to balance delegating in a large organization mm-hmm. with being physically present in a large organization. I made a joke a little while ago that um, you know our, our, our AMXS is... Slowly climbing up to about 700 is where we're gonna is where we're gonna be, which is not the largest AMXS by any means in aircraft maintenance. We we pale in comparison to some of the bigger squadrons in the ACC, but uh, it's still a big organization. To try to to try to lead an organization of six or seven hundred people is a challenge. And the uh, the joke that I had made was that as a commander, um, your your values become signatures first, signatures before self. Signatures is all I do, right? So you spend a lot of time because there's a lot of Things that require that G-series orders guy uh, or, or gal to sign on the dotted line and say, yeah. I approve this, right? Um, but you do that at the, at the detriment and the expense of connecting with your folks. And when there are so many folks, uh, your interactions with them uh, are really precious, right? Yeah. So I, I am working through this command to get a, a better balance of where am I able to put my time and my attention. And, you know, air, airmen give feedback to leaders all the time. 
they say, look, you know, none of us understood what was going on with this particular initiative, right? And all it takes is interfacing with somebody who's got that strategic perspective to go, oh, yeah, let me explain to you exactly where that came from. There's this directive from headquarters Air Force. It came down through AMC. We have to do this. Here's our squadron's piece of it. This is why we made that change. That doesn't necessarily mean that they'll like it or agree with it. Right. But at least now they have context. Yeah. And, and we can go, okay, well, I, all right, I see now why I'm being asked to do this. All it takes in some cases is a, is a five-minute conversation walking out on the flight line or in the hangars or in any work center. But that's not a conversation that you can have if, uh, if you're chained to your desk or right, right. if you are not effectively delegating. So if there are things that you're not willing to trust others to accomplish, you believe you have to do it all yourself that you're never going to get out of your office because yeah. you are just going to sit there and you're going to do the administrivia of running the squadron day to day without going, you know what, I can carve out about a half hour here if I let one of my folks take care of this thing for me. And it might not be precisely the way I would do it, right. but I'm going to trust that it's going to be of a quality that it gets done appropriately. And then you get to grab the chief and the shirt and go outside. And, yeah. uh, and that's a better day. So, so that's, something, <laughs> that's something I'm working on. I like it. So what have you read that we should read? Wow. I've read a lot of things. I was, you know, the, the federal, federal dollars were, were spent for me to gain a master's degree in English. So That is true. Um, yeah. so, we, so we got that going for us, which is nice. Um, <laughs> there, are, there are a couple of good books that I think people should read. Uh, there's a book by Dexter Filkins called Forever War. Okay. And he was an embedded journalist um, oh. With, oh. Uh, with units in Iraq and Afghanistan kind of in the early 2000s. Um, and he, he did some tremendous work on showing what the, what the effect on the service was of fighting these long wars. So Dexter Filkin's book, Forever War, is a really good one. Um, Sebastian Younger, who wrote, he wrote a couple of things. The one that everybody remembers from Sebastian Younger is The Perfect Storm because it turned it into a movie uh, with mm-hmm. George Clooney and Marky Mark. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, he, he wrote, he wrote a, a pair of books that, that come together uh, called War, and tribe. War was about him being embedded in the Karengal Valley in 2007-2008 with U.S. Army forces there. And then tribe followed uh, the same folks that he was in combat with, basically, uh, even though he was a non-combatant, followed them as uh, as their enlistments ended and they attempted to uh, reintegrate into American society. Wow. Following this, some of the most intense combat of the entire Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, for those guys. I mean, they were in multiple troops and contact events each day, every day for months. Wow. And that hit, that was the, the group, essentially, of folks that Sal Junta, who was the Medal of Honor winner, uh, and then whose, whose story is featured in Restrepo. So War and Tribe by Sebastian Younger are a companion piece of documentary Restrepo, okay. which is, gives you the visuals for what those guys were, were doing every day in the Karengal. So that whole kind of trio of works is, is worth reading as well. Okay. Um, and then the last thing, if you're if you're a military history buff, um, you got to read um, Atkinson's Li- uh, Liberation Europe trilogy. So it's uh, it's an Army at Dawn, Day of Battle, and the Guns at Last Light in three history books, and they are okay. dense. But it essentially takes uh, the Allies during the Second World War from the initial North Africa campaign through the campaign up into Italy and Sicily. And then um, from the D-Day landings through the fall of Berlin during the Second wow. World War, um, and he he's one, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and he has written that history in a way that is so personally engaging. Massive research project took him like a decade to do, 
Um, but he has gotten all the details, but then his style is so accessible. So you feel like you get to know Winston Churchill in a way that like you didn't know him before. <laughs> yeah. you, know? you feel like you get to know, um, you know individual commanders who are landing at Normandy. Wow. Um, you get to know Mark Clark and the guys going up the, you know, the Italian campaign in, in Anzio and other places like that. Yeah, those would be my, my works. It would be Philkins, Sebastian Younger, and, uh, and Atkinson, Rick awesome. Atkinson. Thanks. Sure. You got time for one more? Sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Where do you look for your own professional development? Like, uh, what sources do you use? Is there any go-to spots or go-to people that you, you go for? Or is it more of a topic? Or I am, I am fortunate now that many of the folks that I have worked with or that I am friendly with who I've come across through the years are, are really excellent leaders. Um, they are individuals who are you know, pretty clearly earmarked for much higher rank in the gotcha. future. And they really uh, display those characteristics. A lot of them, you know, th- because the, the Air Force has afforded me five or six years to be a squadron commander, a lot of them are commanders that I have worked with through the years. Um, and so, you know, keeping keeping tabs on those folks, and and touching base periodically, and hearing their stories, and and having good peers and mentors that you can bounce things off of. Say, hey, have you ever seen anything like this, or is this the first time? And and nine times out of ten, it's not. There's there's yeah. not much new under the sun. Right. You encounter right. something for the first time, and you're like, man, this looks really weird. And then you reach <laughs> out, and somebody goes, oh, I did one of those two years ago. Here, let me let me give you a couple things to think about. Um, but asking those folks what they're reading or asking those folks what activities they're taking part of, that makes a big difference. The other source that I am really fortunate to have is that many of the folks that I've worked with through the years um, are now becoming like senior master sergeants and chiefs, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that kind of camaraderie uh, with you know, folks who years ago, you know, when I was a CGO, they were a staff sergeant. And now I, yep. now I see you know, the list comes out and that person's been selected for chief. And how tremendous is that, right? Cultivating those really, really strong relationships. I think when you are when you're a younger person, and rightfully so, when you're a younger person, you're always like, oh, I don't know, you know, I, I've I've read all these case studies and fraternization, and I'm I'm concerned that you know I don't I'm not sure how to cultivate these relationships. And then as time goes on, and you just work shoulder to shoulder uh, with so many professional NCOs and senior NCOs, you just get a sense of, hey, this is this is the appropriate way for us to interact. Right. And keeping right. those interactions going into the future. Um, now, as often as I reach out to other friends of mine that are commanders, I reach out to um, senior NCOs who I've worked with, who are first sergeants, who are chiefs, and yeah. go, "Hey, you know, I, I remember that you seemed really strong in this prof- in this particular area. Um, I've got a situation. You know, what what would your thoughts and perspective be?" So it, then wow. then you're able to rely not only on the leadership within your squadron, but from other corners around the Air Force yeah. to get as much good feedback as you can. So yeah, I looked, I looked for professional development um, to, uh, to those folks that I really respect, officers and enlisted. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, let's wrap it up with three takeaways. Uh, if we could summarize this and for, you know, three things for the listener to take away and maybe contemplate over the next little while. Absolutely. I think that um, number one as, as a leader and as an Air Force member is to listen. So if the listener has been listening to this podcast and they've gotten to the end of it, they're a good listener. They, um, but uh, nine times out of ten, when someone comes to you with a problem, right, it's something that you've been in long enough that you've heard of before. Yeah. And you're busy. And you want to get to the point where you go, yeah, I know exactly what you need to do. Hey, go over to such and such an office, talk to this person, fill out this form. It's taken care of, right? We mm-hmm. just blast through it, right? Two things can be the result of that. One can be that person actually was looking for a little 
resilience and emotional support as opposed to coming in and be like, hey, boss, I know I really got this problem. Yeah, I, I hear you. Just go talk to so-and-so. They'll solve it. I'll give them a call. Thanks. Appreciate it. You know? And then you're not, you're not leading with that kind of kindness that I was talking about. Yeah. But you also may miss some. You, in the course of the person discussing the problem with you, you may find out, okay, yeah, this is the practical matter. Practical matter is, you know, there's a problem with your records or your pay or you're having some difficulty, you know, getting something uh, accomplished, yeah. right? But the longer you listen, the more you hear, what are the other stressors in this person's life? Is this just the tip of the iceberg? Is this the right. thing that brought that person into my office? And then when you listen longer, you go, oh my gosh, like this person is financially stressed and relationship stressed and they had a death in their family and they you know, there's something wrong with their records, right? <laughs> yeah, now yeah. now I get to engage. So listening, it's hard to do, but really being a good listener and listening more than we speak, that's one thing. Okay. Uh, another thing is um, don't, be, don't be afraid of greatness. Don't be afraid of excellence. A lot of times you'll, you, will, you will have the capacity to go do something and something holds you back. It slows you down. I don't want to necessarily stand out. You know what I mean? If I do that, everyone's going to call me a nerd. You know, or, and I just, you know, I, it's it, this, this thing out there, it seems like it's almost too good to be true. And I could really try to reach for it and grab it or try to bring it into reality. But, you know, it's a lot safer to, to not take that risk and, right. and just kind of do what I see everybody else doing. Right. I see a lot of folks that when you, when you make the space for them to be great, they are great. And, and that's afterwards you're like, that was really good. And they go, yes, sir. I wish, <laughs> wish I had done that a couple years ago. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah. so yeah, don't be, so don't be afraid of greatness. Um, and then, uh, lastly, you have to, it sounds like a broken record as an Air Force is concerned, have to work for balance. You have to work for balance in your relationships, in your work-life stress, in your family, um, in the way that you lead, trying to strike a balance so that it's not all one side or the other. That when you are out of balance long enough, you are you are forcing your life to stay on track. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you think of it like a like a wheel or a piece of equipment, right? You know, when you're out of balance, it takes a lot of mechanical energy to try to keep the thing on track. Yeah. yeah. Whereas you go in there and you kind of bring things back into tolerance again, and then it runs like it's supposed to. So, bringing your own life into balance and encouraging the people that you lead to have balance. To kind of say, look, man, I see you going on deployment after deployment after deployment, and Uncle Sam appreciates that, and I know that tax-free is hard to walk away from, <laughs> but I am concerned that if you go out again, you, you may not have a family when you get back, right? Let's talk about that a little bit. Let's see if there's a better way that we can get some balance um, into your life in this area. So yeah, so, so be a good listener and um, get, your, get your life into balance as much as possible. And then what was the second thing that I said? Greatness. Greatness. Don't yep. be afraid of greatness. Thanks, Lance. That yeah. was you that was greatness on your part. Well, I, I was sitting there like having to re make sure I was reminding myself of those because if we started off with listening and then I couldn't remember the other two, I'm like, well crap. <laughs> you know? <laughs> We're doing well. We're so team. yeah. So yep, that's that's how we do it, right? Very good. Colonel Caricio, you're awesome. Thanks for the oh, time. I really appreciate you. it. I really appreciate it, Lance. Thanks for the opportunity. So that's it. This is uh, the Refuel Team Fairchild podcast. Again, I'm your host, Master Sergeant Lance Haas. If you have a show idea or anybody that you would like to hear from on this show, please contact us at refuelteamfairchild at gmail.com.